1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, it says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, you are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. As we think upon these truths this evening, laboring together with God. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word, and then we'll continue this study tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at your precious word, God, I just ask for, uh, I ask for your wisdom. Lord, I ask for the words to speak. I pray that you, Lord, I need your help. Guide my thoughts, guide my mind. Lord, that all that's said may be pleasing in thy sight. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement as we continue this study. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word and how you've encouraged my heart. I sure love you, and I'll thank you for all that you'll do this evening. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. We've been kind of going through, we're looking at these three kinds of farmers. First of all, there's the gambling farmer who's, uh, you know, very lazy. He's waiting to the last minute, doing things, undisciplined, uh, and altogether just one whose desires are for pleasing self. We come to the controlling farmer as an individual who's very disciplined, um, but they would be characterized potentially as, uh, you know, you could think OCD. Uh, they could be characterized as, as very um, authoritarian. Um, but they're ultimately, you know, they, though they're disciplined and though potentially very uh, religious in, in their walk with God, um, they're, they're still pleasing their self. Uh, the trusting farmer is one who understands that his ultimate aim is to please God. Very disciplined, um, but disciplined in their walk with the Lord and such. And so I'm going to just kind of do a rehash, kind of review on this. Uh, he keeps the laws of nature. As we said, the gambling farmer... Uh, you know, is an individual that uh, sees that, you know, in farming season, there's certain times you plant your crops, you need to go uh, till up your soil, and there's all certain, you know, (laughs) schedules on when things are to be done based upon uh, soils and different areas and all that. And so the gambling farmer doesn't abide by these particular laws of, you know, the seasons where they need to do the appropriate Uh, actions on their field. The trusting farmer, he does. He understands that God says, listen, there's things I need to do. This is a man that, you know, the characteristic of him is that he has a life that is fruitful. If he does have a crop that yields a hundredfold, he won't be cocky. He won't be arrogant. You know what he does? He takes whatever fruit that he's given and he gives it back to the Lord uh, in regards to the praise. You know, if for some instance his crops were destroyed by a hailstorm or uh, something else happens, he understands that, you know what, I'm just going through a season of life and God knows what's going to happen. God knew the outcome. And I'm just going to trust him. Delighting to do the Father's will and knows that he can always delight the Father by a trusting heart. And, you know, he can become dependent upon his, but the problem is, you know, as we think about this trusting farmer, the just shall live by faith. He cannot please the Father in any way without faith. We learn this from Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. But he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
And you know, this man might wish to become like Abraham, who staggered not at the promise of God, as Romans chapter 4. Let's look at this, Romans chapter 4, and then I'll come to this. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. This is the appropriate mindset of the trusting farmer. An analogy of a, of a believer whose faith and focus is on God. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 4, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to perform. You know, so Abraham had eyes on God that God would produce, that God would give him a child just as he had promised. So his eye was on the Lord. It, you know, his, trust in, his trust in the Father didn't make him lazy. Just because he knew God would do it, it didn't mean that I'm going to quit working now. You know, he shows incredible orderliness, uh, discipline, but his motive is different. The, the controlling farmer is doing all this control for himself. The trusting farmer is doing it for God's glory. There's a different aim. There's a different focus. And uh, his heart bears much fruit. And the trusting farmer, you know, heartily embraces the words of his master. You know, in John 12, 24 through 26, Verily, verily. I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. So this God, the trusting farmer's desire, or male or female, whomever it may be, is that they want to be together with God. Now, there is a position where they can see the fruit and they can go from trusting God to becoming dependent upon oneself, and that's a danger. You know, but the outstanding characteristic is the fruit of God's Spirit in his life. Not necessarily, you know, you think about individuals, uh, you know, Job during a period of time, you're thinking, man, God must be really against him. But Job had, God had a high reputation and high thoughts of Job. Though Job did go through some very difficult time for a period of time, uh, and then the, you see some of the minor prophets and even some of the major prophets, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, who were not well liked by some of their, many of their countrymen. And so the fruit, but they have God's spirit upon their life. And so we've talked about all three of these types of farmers. Now in a time of reflection, when your spiritual leaders drive by your field, what are some, what are some things that they may see? Evidence of a slothful farmer? Is there chaos going on in your life? Is there evidence of a legalistic farmer? You know, you want control and intensity. Uh, there's no room uh, for movement. There's, uh, you know, very uh, legalistic farmer is, you know, it's just that way. It's his way. Uh, not understanding that the focus is to be on the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, evidence of a faithful farmer where there's peace, there's joy, and, and there's some rest. And you think about some things as we ask ourselves, if someone was drive by and, and they were to make an evaluation of our lives, what would they see? And uh, last, are you making small allowances and excuses for not getting the job done? You know, when God begins to convict you about something, and maybe a, an area of your life that uh, you might need to work on or ought to be improved, or God wants you to do something, and, uh, you know, it's easy in our mind to say, well, I, I, I just can't do it at this time, or I can't do this, or, you know, what have you. And there is things that we can easily do, you know, individuals uh, my wife and I have talked to in the past, you know, you just talk about like the everyday simple thing of just sitting down and meditating in God's word. And they'll say, well, I'm too tired or I'm too busy or this or that. And there's always excuses. 
but small allowances for not just getting to know God. And it ought to be something that, I mean, that's the most fundamental of, of a walk with God. And uh, so small allowances. Uh, going on with this, are you tolerating the weeds and allowing the fences or boundaries to erode? What I mean by this is there's things growing up in your life that ought not to be there. There's boundaries that you used to have that are no longer there, and, and you're allowing them just little by little. I mean, it's just kind of you're not keeping up with the upkeep of where you should be. Now, I understand sometimes if you're a controlling farmer and you have so many boundaries, or you have so many things that are, you know, very, uh, that are outside of what is necessary, well then in that sense, <laughs> there's some things that ought to be uh, removed. But what I'm saying is, is there's boundaries to erode as you think about in your own life, allowing fences or things in your life, or there's things you used to do that were right and you know, it ought to be, as I remember back when I was in Bible college and others, they always said, are you, you know, where are you at in your Christian life? If you look back and I used to be this and I used to be this and I, you know, I, I used to be this kind of person and man, I was on fire for God. And, well, it ought not to be the past, it ought to be a present reality. And so things to think about, uh, what is your tolerance for chaos in someone else's life, in your life? If others have chaos in their life, how do you deal with it? I mean, is it uh, something of a, a great agitation? You know, uh, you think about the controlling farmer, thinking of the controlling farmer as he evaluates the gambling farmer. He's like, what a lazy, slothful person they are. And the gambling farmer says, what a rude individual. And both individuals are merely focused upon themselves rather than to say, hey, here's some spiritual problems in their life that need to be corrected. You know, and, and even thinking about my own life, you know, or your, your life as you think about it. What are some, you know, tolerance in my life for chaos? Do you see your neighbor's chaos as a threat to his usefulness or as a threat to your love for order? You know, it can be easy where we have a greater love for orderliness and discipline than we do necessarily for the person. And every individual is at a different spiritual state. It does take God's patience to help us as individuals and people are working through uh, things in their life, chaos. Because as there's sin in a life, if you have an individual whose life is a mess, there's chaos. And to walk with them on that journey out of chaos into order, into discipline, not necessarily in the same way that you organize things or you're disciplined on things, but a discipline of and their life as they begin to grow. I mean, just our daughter isn't the most, uh, she's, she likes to put things away. But there's sometimes she's not, and you know, uh, and, and there's a difference. My wife and I have a different, you know, in regards to order on things and how things are arranged. and It's different. But it ought not to be a chaotic uh, life, but understanding that, you know, we're all growing. We're all at a spiritual state, and, and we're improving. And so reflecting on that as you're uh, potentially maybe work, you know, ministering to someone else. Uh, do you panic? Uh, the legalistic farmer or trust the faithful farmer when life gets out of control. When a tragedy, a trauma, an unexpected uh, difficulty arises, are you panicking? The legalistic farmer, the, the controlling farmer is going to just, I mean, they're going to lose it. They're going to be very irritable. Uh, potentially angry, frustrated, when life gets out of their control, when things are 
you know, seemingly impossible, this is the person that will respond because life, if they can control all the facets of their life, then they're okay emotionally. But if something gets out of their control, uh, then there goes the emotional stability. Ultimately, that is an indicator of wanting, you know, pleasing of self. And, and we all find ourselves there sometimes, but it ought to get to the place uh, of this faithful farmer, the trusting farmer, that, you know what, when, li- when difficulties come, uh, that we bring it before the Lord and ask for his help. I was just reading in devotions this morning with Eliana about Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, as we were reading, reading it, and, and I was just, you know, as you think about this, a trusting farmer, Daniel, continued to pray in public, knowing the public decree. You know, he didn't panic. He didn't go into a mess. He just said, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going to trust the Lord. And there's a, there's a difference here. One says, I, I, I'm trusting that God is in control. The other uh, is great panic, you know, much like some of the other individuals like Haman did there in es- the book of Esther, right? He panicked <laughs> at certain things, and uh, he ended up, you know, trying to, he was on the bed of Esther, and the king saw him, and it ended up being his life, and it was just a bad state. He was a man that was in control, and he lost it. Moving forward in a wrap-up, what do I do now? And uh, some, take some time to change. I want to look at several passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 4. So we've looked through all sorts of things. I mean, we had the teabag illustration. There was, uh, there was the city illustration of being an alien in a, you know, coming from here, never out of, if someone came, you know, never left Thompson, and then they somehow you dropped them in the middle of a New York City or someone from, you know, some uh, remote, or, you know, remote tribe in the deepest, darkest parts of this world where they've never really seen much exposure, and, and you plop them in the middle of New York City, it would be a very frightening thing. Uh, and, and so how do we respond? How do we respond when someone cuts us off on the road? And uh, all of these things that, you know, rather than having a helicopter view, we have a, you know what, God, I just need the next step view, right? How do I move in traffic? All of these things that we've been looking at. So what do I do now with all the information and all the lessons that have been gone forth? First Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So there is a taking heed. And second of all, preparing the soil. It says, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So we begin to prepare the soil of our heart. We begin to say, Lord, is there, you know, is there the chaos in my life? Am I the gambling farmer? Am I the, the, the controlling farmer? Am I the trusting farmer? Where am I? And uh, as we look at that, the next thing we'll do is stay in the sun. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we'll look there. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it reads, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What do we need to do? I need to stay in the sun and the radiance of God, right? To change me. Understanding that, remember, God writes out the checks. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is the trusting farmer that understands, as he said, if, if I lose all my crops or I have a bountiful crop, you know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, as Job would state. It's God that works in me, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. God's working in me for his pleasure as I'm yielded to him. So what do I need to do? I need to remember that God writes out the checks. God writes out for what I need in life. And so taking time to change. What do I do now, continuing with this? Uh, taking time to teach others. You know, and as we see this here in 2 Timothy 2, 2, we'll look at this. I've really appreciated and enjoyed this study, and it's a marvelous book. I I think it's got some tremendous, tremendous uh, insights into Scripture, and uh, just everyday Christianity has been a a real blessing to me, an encouragement, a challenge, and uh, I've I've richly been blessed by it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. It ought to be in our heart, God, I want to teach others. God, I want to teach others about you, not necessarily as a teacher, but I want to have an influence on those around me. I want to be able to, and you know, ultimately in the church, having a discipleship, one-on-one or what have you, with others. Small groups like we have on Tuesday nights, one-on-one discipleship. Uh, you know, where you're, someone gets, maybe gets saved or they just want to grow in the Lord and, and you just meet with them and just go over the Bible with them. You know what? That's probably that one-on-one discipleship when you're there with someone and they're asking questions uh, and sometimes you're stumped. You're like, I don't know where to go from here. I don't, you know, I don't know how to respond to that. And so you go and you study the scriptures and you learn. It's a, uh, it's a very edifying time and really praying that, you know, God, God give us a one-on-one discipleship. And our desire is become a God-loving, word-filled, ministry-minded disciple-maker. As Genesis talks about, you know, reproducing after one's kind, that Christians reproduce Christians. And, uh, you know, godliness should be reproducing godliness. And that's our desire of our hearts. Going forth from here, a word to disciple-makers. Whose laws will you obey, your own or God? A legalist doesn't have to, be controlling, have to be a controlling person with scores of rules he imposes upon himself or upon others to ensure that life works the way he wants. The controlling person, the legalist, he can be a controlling person with just one rule. In this case, not one of God's rules. That he imposes upon himself and others. Thou shalt, you know, thou shalt leave me alone. I will rule myself. You know, and, and this individual would be an out-and-out rebel. I mean, the Pharisees themselves were incredible legalists. I mean, you've got to follow this and this. I mean, they had multiple rules, but they were an out-and-out rebel to God. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. 
And the legalist is characterized by an intensity with which he keeps his rule, even if it's only one rule. The legalist says, well, I keep the rule, so you should too. And, you know, obviously going on with the full idea here, the legalism is, you know, that, uh, like the Pharisees, legalism, whereas they were putting rules in order to become, you know, a child of God. And so they were adding to what God had. But nevertheless, legalist, uh, he looks with contempt upon anyone else who would try to interfere with his system of individualism. This is the way it is. This is the way it's right or not. No one has favor unless he abides by his rules. He delights in the company of other single rule legalists who have the same rule. Hey, let's all band together, get on our soapbox. We all have the same rule, so we're the only right crowd. Now, I'm not discounting Scripture on certain things. But this single rule legalist is really no different than a multiple rule legalist, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both are embracing rules of life for their minds, and it you know, to give them what they want, some satisfaction. And they don't have a peace of mind unless they're in control. They lose control, bad circumstances happen, and their world falls apart. You know, the universe by God's design, for them, is a moral universe. It's operated by law. There's not the grace. There are times I've and growing up, they're at church. Individuals would have things in their lives, and in the church that we had attend, if, if you somehow breach these particular rules without even a church meeting, they would dismiss a person because of breaching some uh, rule of the Scripture without any desire for reconciliation. So again, uh, you know, whose laws will you obey, your own or God's? If you choose to obey God's laws, what motives drives you to keep them? Love for yourself or love for God or others? The dangers of ditch watching, another point to think about here. You know, when you're ministering to others, an individual, you know, that maybe someone is into drinking and drugs and other bad things of life, and they accept Jesus, and they go whew, to the extreme opposite. And man, if there's anyone that used to be like they used to be, I mean, they're just like, ah, you know, just like very intense. And you're like, whoa, you know, sometimes it takes some time to get an individual. You don't want this pendulum reaction from one to the other. And there's a, a great intensity, you know, swinging the pendulum. Uh, you know, when someone's been deeply hurt and wronged by someone, particularly a parent or some other leader's life, they'll exert a pendulum reaction. And, uh, you know, Someone might say, when I get a home of my own, I will never be like my parent. You know, the person could say, as the author has an example here, he was never there when we needed him. So you go from one extreme to the next. Both extremes are not appropriate, right? So be careful as you're ministering to others that they're not taking a knee-jerk reaction uh, to things in their life, right? Becoming that trusting farmer that says, okay, this isn't where I should be, but that's also not where I should be. I need to be in the biblical path, and, and it's a, a balanced path. It's not an extreme. You know, if an individual, uh, you know, discipling in this ditch watching can go from one extreme to the other. And be very careful. A person going to an op extreme is like some, uh, you know, some way like a person who was driving a car once when the car went into the ditch. 
You know, it was such a scary experience as he's driving the car, he'll never do it, you know, never wants to repeat it. So now he drives both eyes fixed steadfastly on one side of the road or the other, determined to stay out of the ditch. So if you're driving down the road and you said, well, I got on the passenger side ditch as I was driving, so I'm going to make sure that I'm watching that ditch, not realizing that there's a ditch potentially on the, the driver's side, you can become looking, well, I'm going to stay away from this because I fell to that, but avoid this. And so you're getting the wrong focus. So instead of focusing on these extremes, instead of focusing, I'm going to stay away from this sin, and I'm going to stay away from this sin, we get back onto Christ. When I begin to love Christ, I say, hey, that's not good, and that's not good. But I can stay on the road. I can begin to make progress. And that is the thing. When someone's saying, hey, I'm trying to get away from this sin, and this one, and this sin, and as they begin to have that relationship with God and learn and, and begin to have the affection for Christ, they stay on the center line. Because they're understanding there is balance and peace with Christ. They're not, they're not shifting from one to the other. I had a friend back when I was in the military, and he was an engineer like myself. He wasn't military. And he accepted Jesus Christ, and he went from being a Catholic who, was a, who would go to drinking and he shifted to another extreme, to like a controlling farmer. He was very harsh, uh, ended up getting married, and, and, and just very, uh, and the lady he married had some kids. And, and this guy was just very, very harsh. I mean, it was just like he was trying to stamp out anything with such a firm hand. With an, and the endeavor was right, he wanted holiness, but his approach was, I don't want to be like this. Not understanding that there's multiple facets, obviously for these young uh, children that were learning from him, that he wasn't their dad. So there were some things that, I mean, it was a difficult circumstance. And uh, we, it's easy to oversteer in our spiritual walk, trying to, you know, when we're young, and the, you know, that's where we just, as we're discipling others, so let's think about this. Yes, that is wrong. It's going to take some time. Don't beat yourself up. That maybe you used to be like that. You know, obviously understanding what Christ has done, and we've made bad decisions. We've gone the extremes one to the other. Galatians chapter 6 talks about bearing the burdens of others. And so, uh, as we learn about laboring with God, God is faithful and patient with us to help us bear the burdens. And then eventually we'll make good progress and, and begin to move forth uh, along the path of life. And final thoughts here in the last slide. Uh, for this evening. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verse 2. 2 through 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living way will lay it to his heart. And the living will lay it to his heart. Excuse me. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the, house, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You know what, funerals are much more instructive than 
parties. You know, according to the wisest king, he says, you know, when you go to a funeral, you're understanding that that's the end state of a man. And many times in those uh, desperate conditions, having seen the potential loss of a loved one, we begin to think about eternity. What am I doing with my life? Especially if it's a young person, you think, wow, life is so short. We don't know how long our life will be. Every death for the believer, whether of death, uh, a death of self or a, a loved one, death to life itself, though, it brings sorrow. A veil of tears. But that tears has the opportunity to enter into a greater understanding of the comfort and the presence of Christ. And in the sorrow, as we see here, it's better to go to the house of mourning, that I need to die to myself to possess more. If we don't die physically, we don't physically experience heaven. Now, if we're raptured, we don't have to die. But, barring the rapture, if we don't die, we don't experience the rewards. If I don't die to myself now, then I don't experience the riches of Christ. If I don't experience Christ here when I'm not dead to myself. You know, really, death is the heart of the gospel message. Jesus Christ died. And that, that death, the penalty of sin, it brought the guarantee of our eternity, our dwelling with him forever, and the relationship with him. Now, when we lose a loved one, we, we think about what they're experiencing in heaven. I, I think about loved ones that I've lost. I'm sure you as well. And you think about that they're up there and they're in the very fellowship of the Father. And they're basking in His glory. If they had not passed, they would have never realized the fullness of God. You know, the thought of heaven is sweeter. Not primarily, not because your loved one is there, but the reality of it, you know, is, is we do find our loved ones stepping from time to eternity that, yes, I will be with them. But it ought to be our desire that I want to get better at dying. I want to struggle less with my flesh. You know, when something here on earth confronts me and, and in my pride, I want to face it in my own strength. I come up against a crossroads of decisions. I choose to die to my will and say, God, I don't understand it, but I know this is what you want. Or I say, no, I'll try to fix the problem my way. You know, as we think about standing in the presence of God, perfect, complete, and entire by the work of his hands. Paul would long for his own redemption. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. Now do I long to be with some of the loved ones 
that I've lost before? Absolutely. And I'm sure you do as well. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Going on to verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Paul is saying, listen, I can't wait till my body is fully redeemed. My spirit and soul are on the way to heaven, but this body, when it dies, will go to the work. The grave. Someday, our bodies will be redeemed and we'll be fully whole in heaven. The thought of becoming entirely whole, fully restored in the spirit to the likeness of Christ makes the thought of dying such a minor thing. The loss of a loved one, someone with whom we're close, is very difficult. I had a best friend back in university. He was quadriplegic. He and I were very, very good friends, and we would talk for many hours. A lot of uh, similar likes and dislikes, and we were experiencing life and growing in our walk with the Lord together, and his name was Jake. I have another friend, Jake, but he doesn't know the Lord. But this Jake knew the Lord, and he'd end up coming to know Christ as his Savior, and I just thought about, you know what, I miss going on trips with him. We'd take him on trips, and yes, I'd have to get him bathed and take him to the washroom and do all sorts of stuff with him, but we had such fun together. I really appreciated him. And, but as I think about it, it was a number of years ago. It was, hit me pretty hard at the time when he passed. and uh, You know, and the loss of my grandmother and others, but I, you know, I think they're whole. I want you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this idea of dying to myself. We are so easily embracing this life as so valuable. And we cling to the things of this world with such a death grip. And yet, our lives are so short. Without death to self, I don't know the riches of Christ. Without physical death, I don't know about eternal life in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This study has been about how to die well. You know, if you come to a funeral and someone might say, well, he or she, they're in a better place. And they are. It's not a better place just because there's mansions. It's they get an upfront, personal view of the Lamb of God and God Himself. There's no sin 
No selfishness. I get to bask in His glory. When I die to myself, I get to see the greatness of my God. How rich, wonderful, caring He is. I've been going through Psalms, and that's where I'm at, a portion of my devotions, and it's been so refreshing, enriching. As I just think about that God is in control of all the weather, He's in control of all of it. Rather than worrying about all this stuff, I just say, you know what, (laughs) I'm going to trust you, Lord. And it's easy at times to do that. And other times it's much more difficult. Especially when the fires are hot around us. But I don't know about how good God is. You know what, Peter? Peter denied the Lord, but when he saw Jesus resurrected, and then Jesus came there to the, the seashore, and Peter ran to him, or jumped out of the boat, there was a change. Peter had died to himself. Fishing was no longer his thing, his occupation. It was Jesus is who he says he is. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I have the opportunity someday to see God in all His glory. And I'll be like Him. I'll be like the one who redeemed me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn with me there. Verse 51 and 52. Verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Wow. (laughs) Death comes. But death brings riches. Death brings the presence of God. When I die to myself and surrender to God, when that seed goes into that ground in death, it brings forth fruit. When I say, God, it's not my life, it's yours, only then can I begin to experience the fruit that God wants to bear in my life. You know, we'll behold the bridegroom in all of his splendor. We'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Think about this in Revelation chapter 22, as it uses the symbolism and the the picture here of the bridegroom in Revelation 22. The Apostle John's kind of more passing final words here of the book of Revelation, verse 17 of Revelation 22. And the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And that ought to be our heart cry. And as we, you know, several thoughts here. 
that we've been looking through a glass darkly, as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says. And we've been seeing God through my sinful flesh, through my wants, through my grasping of this world. It ought to be our heart's endeavor and our heart's desire to just say, God, I want to be changed into your image. We don't experience the closeness and the presence of God because we cling so much to this world. Whatever it may be. It can be jobs, finances, hobbies, friends, family, you name it. I like that hymn, And Lord haste the day when my face shall be sight. And the truth is, when we shall be completely changed into His image. And so with those final thoughts, it ought to be my heart cry, I want to be better at dying. And when I learn to die, then I'll learn to really live and know Christ. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, no music this evening, the first question to ask is, for those that may be watching, First one, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If you died today, is Jesus your Savior? And as a Christian, how are you doing on dying to self? Is your desire to be changed into His image or to be changed into the image that you believe you should be? I don't get to know more of Christ and the splendor and the majesty and the glory and the beauty of Christ if I don't die to self. And so when you're done praying, feel free to look up and I'll conclude in prayer this evening.